0: So, Julie, I often tell people that there are four opportunities to overcoming an objection, the most powerful of which is before the objection happens. Have you ever heard of this concept?
1: You're always teaching me new stuff, Torin. No, I haven't. Tell me more.
0: So, the acronym for me, and it's something that I used back in the 90s when I had my own sales team, the acronym is WNLB. Well, the B stands for before. And before any of you start to wonder which online system is best for payroll, let me share a few facts. Gusto is actually simple and easy, surprisingly easy and very fast. 90% of customers say switching to Gusto was easy. 85% of customers say running payroll is easier now than their previous provider. And three out of four customers take 10 minutes or less to run payroll with Gusto. I think that's easy. You can use our link, gusto.com forward slash C-A-T-K for three complimentary months. Again, that's gusto.com forward slash C-A-T-K. It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King.
1: Welcome
0: to Crazy and the King. Yep, 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 yep. So listen, I want to just get right to it. I got to thank you for sharing that, that RAND study last week on income inequality. You know, when you jumped out, out the chute and you talked about the the amount of... You know disparity from like the mid seventies up until now, and you mentioned the forty two thousand dollars a year that really has shifted from one income class to another, one that didn't really need it. Uh, what an incredible study! So thank you ever so much for sharing that. How are you feeling?
1: Doing great. Another light or another week, and healthy and happy and. Can't complain. How about
0: you? I'm good. Uh, Absolutely. I'm good. You know, i got a lot happening this week, but I want to make sure that we share with folks. Uh, I can pull up uh, and we'll make sure we share it with you individuals, but we found a story on the Charlotte Observer and it kind of updates something that we talked about. Julie and I talked about a couple of weeks back. And, you know, it's interesting because when Chad posted um, the Wells Fargo uh, episode on LinkedIn, there was a particular individual. I don't know who he is, um, and I'm not necessarily calling him out. But he he almost tried to not almost. He he took issue with the fact that Chad posted our Wells Fargo uh, episode, and that he said, "Well, the Wells Fargo CEO apologized." And you know, I find it very very interesting when you only lean on one piece of the conversation or one piece of the activity or what took place, and not the totality of it. And in the episode, we even mentioned that we didn't know whether or not he had apologized. So apparently he apologized after our episode. But nonetheless, he apologized. An update. Found this article on the Charlotte Observer and at least seven black female senior executives have left Wells Fargo in the past 12 months. That that can contribute to the pipeline uh, that we are talking about. Uh, Quote, there is definitely a sense uh, that that bias lives vibrantly at Wells Fargo. And I think it is around gender, gender identity, as well as race and ethnicity, said by Jimmy Pascal, Wells Fargo's head of enterprise diversity and inclusion. And he said that in a June talk with the CFO of Wells Fargo, Mr. John Shrewsbury. uh, And that was actually distributed internally. So we have even the head of DNI, saying that there's an issue inside of Wells Fargo. So for all of those individuals out there who uh, suggest or might be thinking that Julie and I are only playing one side of the quarter, we're not. When we raise these issues of consideration, it's not because we want to penalize organizations. We want organizations to, to do better. Uh, we absolutely want organizations to do better. And the last thing that I'll say, Julie, is, you know last week CEO Charlie Scharf said that, quote, "This is a big company. I can have the best of intentions, I can want to do a whole series of things, but we need to do these things throughout the entire organization. We need to get the organization believing, we need to get the organization understanding, and we need to get the organization managing to very different outcomes than we've gotten. I appreciate his position. I appreciate what he is saying. We simply want to hold him accountable. So for all of you who are listening to the pod, you can find that story on uh, the Charlotte Observer. It is titled, We Need to Do More, Seven High-Ranking Black Women Leave Wells Fargo.
1: Yeah, well, and and that directly relates to another important story that came out this week. Trist, or Tristan, wow, Torin. Who, who are we thinking about?
0: <laughs> That's cool. We like Tristan. We love Tristan. Forget that. We love. I, miss,
1: I miss my boy. That's right. Uh, That's right. <laughs> right. So, anyway, we got um, September unemployment numbers last week, and boy, did we see eight hundred and sixty-five thousand yeah. women left the workforce last month. I'm sure very much coinciding with the start of homeschooling mm-hmm. a lot of this nation's mm-hmm. children.
0: A very good point. Yep.
1: Yeah, and when you look at the impact, just like we're talking about black female senior executive leaving Wells Fargo, we're seeing that over 300,000 of the women were Latinas and nearly 60,000 were black women. And this it it so ties to all the things that we've been talking about over the few months, the last few months, about how women, and especially women of color, are going to be more negatively impacted by COVID in the long term in our our journey towards equality. So we've definitely got to keep an eye on this, and I don't think this is going to be the last month that we see this happening.
0: You know, I'm actually just, you know how I am about the calendar, 865, I'm sorry, the calculator, 865,000 times, uh, let's go with 13%. So that looks like the Black women that left is somewhere around 9% or so of that number. Okay. So what's really interesting about that is normally we might be escalating the latina latino the black women but that is mostly white women
1: it's mostly white women
0: that have left the workforce
1: yep and i think that you know i would like to dig into and see if it's available because i haven't been able to find it yet but um what the other demographic pieces of of this is right so you're, you're Probably thinking a lot of them, or at least I'm thinking um, in terms of the white women are are married, um, have a, a upper middle class second income in the house. And so, again, the opportunity to leave the workforce and to focus on your family at this point, you know, are we seeing more white women leaving because that's the case?
0: Um, I don't know. Such an interesting point. See, so you just raised something that I had not even thought about, like the ability to be able to leave the workforce and it not interrupt the family. If in fact that decision was made because of children, because of school, because of COVID, are the women leaving in a position to do such because they had that second income the income of a partner or spouse or, you know, retirement or, uh, inheritance, that is a very interesting, uh, consideration that you raise. I wonder if we can find that information. Where'd you get this number from? Where'd it come from?
1: Um, it came from the the labor department from their their monthly, um, numbers. So I'm, it just came out on Friday, Yeah. Um, so I'm sure over this week we'll get some more analysis, or at least I'm hoping for, so we may revisit this next week.
0: That'd be good. Uh, so, hat tip to Jill Gregory, who serves as the first chief marketing officer of NASCAR, and uh, Brandon Thompson. Shout out to you, Brandon. My man is going to email you. I know that you are now the VP of d and you are a kappa, so we're going to see if we can get you on the show here. Uh, he was installed as the VP of DNI back in June of this year. Uh, so shout out to the both of them. And, and the reason we do that is because we I'm going down to Charlotte this week to do some recording with uh, the deck leadership team. They are the most diverse pit crew in all of NASCAR. Gonna be meeting with uh, Sean Pete and Mr. Mike Metcalf. Having an incredible time with them, an incredible time on the track. I promise, Julie, I'm not going to get behind the wheel of the vehicle, but we are going to film some content. And as a result of this trip, we're going to do a special replay of my absolute favorite episode of Crazy in the King from 2019. Uh, it was an episode with Dr. Robert Jensen. So for all of the listeners, this is a, tr- a warning that 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 this episode is going to be long because Julie and I are going to replay the entire Uh, conversation. And, you know, Julie, I appreciated hearing your reminder around having patience that we struggle with what seems to be common sense and trying to have patience. There was, it was refreshing to hear you say that in part of that interview last year.
1: Yeah. I think just his presence, when I saw him speak personally it, it dramatically impacted me as a white person about how to listen better and to listen without feeling like you have to have a solution or, or just that empathy piece that he does so well. And that's why I knew he was so, going to be such a great guest. And he's absolutely my favorite as well.
0: Yeah. I asked Dr. Jensen, you know, uh, about his why, you know, why, why do you do this work? Uh, and inside of the interview you'll hear he talks about moral dignity dignity and obligations he actually calls it an argument of justice um and, and that it it has actually made his life better like like think about that he he's pursuing dNI work he's pursuing conversation around race and he says it's its obligation and that it has made his life better we love that
1: We do. We do. So we are excited to give you now the full replay um, from Dr. Jensen. And don't forget, you can also grab his book, The Heart of Whiteness, on Amazon. I've read it twice. I highly recommend it.
0: Absolutely. The episodes originally aired June 12th and 19th of 2019. You can find them at crazyandtheking.com. But for now, we will let you listen to this incredible replay.
1: Welcome to Crazy and the King. Hey, Torn, are you there?
0: Absolutely. Another episode. And this is what makes me smile because we are staying true to what we said that we were going to do. We had the opportunity to talk to, and I will only say it this time, Dr. Robert Jensen. And we had that chance of inserting new, you know, off week content uh, starting here in the month of June. So I'm so looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yes. So as you said, Torn, we have Dr. Robert Jensen, who is an emeritus professor from the School of Journalism from UT Austin, one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, My little brother lives there with his beautiful wife. And Dr. Jensen is an author. A couple of books that I know in his space are The End of Patriarchy, The Radical Feminism for Men, and one that I have just wrapped up Called the Heart of Whiteness: Confronting Race, Racism, and White Privilege. So, welcome, Dr. Jensen, to one of the first interviews for Crazy and the King in June. How are you?
2: I'm fine. Uh, I, I'm crazy, but I'm not a king, so I guess I got at least half of your podcast <laughs> covered.
1: Well, you're in good company because I'm crazy and and Torrance the King here.
2: That's right,
0: and we and we and we know we know Robert that you are going to absolutely deliver on your half. So, uh, let's just take it away. It's going to be- <laughs> You're yes, half sir. of the
1: crazy. There you go. That's right. All right. So I actually had the the privilege of seeing Dr. Jensen, or, or as we call him here, crazy in the King, Bob at the national diversity conference in Dallas, Texas earlier this year, you all heard me rave about it because I got to see my, my favorite guy, president Barack Obama. Um, but the, the, other highlight for me at this conference was sitting in Dr. Jensen's uh, session on race, racism, and and white privilege. And as soon as I got out of that session, I I called Chad, my husband, and I said, got to talk to this guy, got to spend a little bit more time learning from him. And so I I just want to kind of start out Bob, if you can, just a mm-hmm. little bit about you. I think it sets up the audience so perfectly to know kind of that you're, a, well, a white guy from North Dakota. But yeah. if you can tell us <laughs> some about that.
2: Yeah, I'm 60 years old. I was born in 1958 in small town in North Dakota, grew up in Fargo, North Dakota. Now, that's the big city. You know, it had 60,000 people when I was a kid. <laughs> so I'm from a small, overwhelmingly white um Part of the country, and like most people who grow up in such places, uh, I, I really didn't have any any basis for <laughs> understanding what diversity might be, except what I saw on television. Uh, I spent my twenties working as a newspaper journalist, and that got me around the country. Uh, and so I had to start realizing the whole world didn't look like me. Uh, but it wasn't until I was thirty years old and I went back to graduate school uh, I was training for a university job. Uh, And that's when I ran into serious critique of the systems and structures of power in this country. That's where I first started thinking about a feminist critique of patriarchy. It's where I first started thinking about a critical race theory approach to the question of whiteness. And that is what really kind of turned my world upside down. And I feel really fortunate, not only that I, you know, was able to do that in the context of studying. But I met a lot of people, including a lot of white people, uh, who helped me sort of work my way through that. Because everybody understands when you first run into a critique of these big systems and structures of power, which give you unearned privilege and power, uh, it's jarring. And the first instinct, of course, is to want to deny it, to want to believe that you're the product of your own choices. That everything you've got, you earned yourself. That if you're in a position of some comfort, it's because you worked hard to get it. Uh, and I had all of those instincts, of course, to want to deny the the effects of big systems like white supremacy. But um, I feel really fortunate. I met a lot of great people who who helped me deal with that. And so, I've tried to work that into my teaching and my political life uh, ever since then. Um, I want to point out, I'm not a scholar of race in a technical sense. I mean, I didn't build my career around research into the question of race. I tried to make it part of everything I did. Uh, it, it was part of my research. It was part of my teaching. It was part of my political and community life. And I think that's an, another important thing. Uh I don't ever claim to be an expert in these matters. I just claim to be someone who has had a great opportunity to try and work it out.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's a, a really great point. And one of the things this uh, I really liked about the heart of whiteness is I'm also reading right now a, a history of white people by Neil Irvin, painter, and It occurred to me as I've kind of been reading them parallel is when I walked into your session at National Diversity Conference, I was prepared for a very academic conversation. You're you're a doctor, you're a professor. And and so I thought, okay, I'm going to learn kind of from a very, um, well, academic level, more conversation about um, race and racism in America and what you gave us was a very practical conversation about race in America. Mm-hmm. And I will say for the first, I don't know, maybe minute, I thought, I don't know if I'm in the right place, uh, because you started, and I'm sure you already know this, and you said, uh, America is a white supremacist country. And I, I kind of went, um, shit, like, I'm one of the only white people in here. I don't I'm not one of those people. No, no, no. I, I don't know if I'm going to make it through no. this whole presentation. And uh, and if you can, just kind of go into how you're thinking and, and you have so much information and so much data that really kind of helps explain that theory and, and that perspective.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I, I want to sort of give a shout out to that book you mentioned, The History of White People by Nell Painter. Uh, it's a, really an extraordinary book. Um and, and she is a, an expert. She's a historian by training and um, really a, an incredible scholar. And and so I think those kinds of works are important. Um, I'm not one of them. And that was reflected in the presentation you, you saw me give. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I try to always speak in plain language. Uh, I come out of an academic background, but I tire quickly of academic jargon. So uh, I try and lay it out clearly and use words that name the world accurately, and that's why I use the term white supremacy. Now, we're used to thinking about white supremacy only in terms of people who uh, assert an overt white supremacist supremacist ideology, like the Ku Klux Klan or neo-Nazi groups, and certainly those are white supremacists, but the point I was trying to make is that we all live in a white supremacist country. That is, it was a country founded on white supremacy. Uh, It was a country that used the ideology of white supremacy to rationalize the extermination of indigenous people and African slavery, as well as the exploitation of really every non-white group uh, for for low-cost labor throughout the history of the country, which is what built this country. Now, that doesn't mean I am a white supremacist or you are a white supremacist, but it means that we have to come to terms with living in that society. And so I always try to focus not just on the easy targets. I think, you know, for most of America, the Klan is an easy target. Um, Not very many people go around vocally supporting the Ku Klux Klan. But it's that everyday racism, liberal racism, the unconscious, unacknowledged racism that we can all give into, uh, sometimes not even knowing. It's about what's often called institutional racism, the way that the society is structured to replicate white supremacist patterns. All of that is what we really have to struggle with. And so uh, a lot of that came from this term white privilege. You know, White privilege was a term that was bouncing around 20, 30 years ago and then became much more commonplace. And uh, I always say that you can't understand white privilege if you don't understand the nature of the society, out of what, out of which white privilege emerges, and to understand it, you have to name it honestly, and that's why I use white supremacy not only as a label for the bad guys, but as an accurate account of contemporary America. and And in the the session you were part of, we went through all the ways in which that's an accurate term: the distribution of wealth, uh, racialized rates, and things like. Um, the use of force, especially deadly force by law enforcement. Uh, You know, everything, every piece of data we have in the United States points to that racialized disparity between white and non-white America, especially the disparity between white and black America. And so the first thing we have to do, as you point out, is get comfortable with being able to say, yes, I live in a white supremacist society.
0: My question to both you and to Julie, Julie, why was it a challenge for you to maybe sit through the entire uh, presentation, or at least you thought it might be a challenge? And my question to you, Robert, why was this work important? Why did you want to make it a part of almost everything that you were doing?
1: So, I, I mean, I will say, so, you know, why was it hard for me to sit in the presentation? You know, Torn, you and I talked about this, I think, maybe on our first podcast is that I think a lot of, well, I'll speak for myself, white liberal suburbanites had grown very apathetic in, in our anger or in our, our diligence to continue to fight for equality in this country under Obama because it's like it almost became kind of like, hey – we got a black president, so everything is going to be fine now and I can relax and I can focus on raising my kids and, and doing all these things and fighting my fight as a person with a disability. And then I've had kind of a couple years of, of backlash of, of kind of this, um, things haven't changed in America. You can't go, become complacent. You can't sit on your laurel, laurels because if you are, you're just as guilty as a person who's out there promoting that racism and promoting the the power structure that exists. And when I was, you know, sitting in, in Bob's session, it really was kind of just hit me in the gut when he said we live in a white supremacist society. And my gut reaction was, no, that's wrong. We don't, we've come so far And then to listen to the facts and all those kind of things, it was just really reinvigorated, I think. Uh,
2: Let me jump in uh, because I think there are a couple of things you said, Julie, that I I would maybe challenge a bit. First of all, things are better in in a lot of ways than they were uh, in the past. I was born, I said, in 1958. I don't think anybody wants to go back to the state of race relations in the United States in 1958. You know, the black population of the country was essentially disenfranchised. You know, there were a lot of other problems in 1958 we don't want to have to live through again. So I think it's important to note that things have changed and in many ways changed for the better. Uh, But as you point out, it's also just as important to recognize how some patterns, especially patterns in, in disparities in in wealth and and what I call wealth and well-being, you know, markers of health and and income and that kind of thing. Some of those patterns have not changed and that's important. The other thing that I think we have to think carefully about is uh, accountability. So I live in Texas and there's a whole lot of white people in Texas who are actively trying to pass laws to make it difficult, more difficult for people to vote. And those voter Uh, ID laws and other forms of changing the, the electoral system are clearly designed to try to suppress the black and Latino vote in Texas, because those populations tend to vote disproportionately democratic. I mean, there's some politics there that's, you know, just unavoidable. Well, I think that the people who are actively trying to pass those voter ID laws are more complicit than I am. Um, and, and it doesn't mean, again, that I'm off the hook, but it means there are different levels of complicity. Uh, and so this is what makes it all so complicated. It, it, we don't want to lull ourselves into a sense that somehow we're better than all the others and we don't have to you know, engage in our own critical self-reflection. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge things are better in some ways. Otherwise, the struggles of people in movements, political movements, um, the civil rights movement and others, the struggles of those people would have been in vain if nothing was better. And of course, a lot of things are better.
0: I agree, Robert. I do believe that things are better. I also agree that uh, equally, we must remain vigilant and complacency is unfortunately just not an option. I smiled on my side when Julie said that, you know, she kind of sat back, kicked her feet up Mm -hmm. and said, all right. Everything is good. And I'm like, shit, everything ain't never been good. If you are, you know, if you are an African-American male, black male, you know, things have never just been (laughs) good, if you will. But let's get back to my question. Why was this work? Why is this work important to you?
2: Well, for me, I think there are there are always two answers to a question like that.
0: We'll take them both.
2: Okay. One is that I you know, I have certain moral principles. And they're important to me. I claim to be in favor of dignity, you know, the inherent dignity of all people. Uh, I claim to be in favor of equality and solidarity. And and those are values I think a lot of us hold. And so if I want to be the person I claim to be, if I want to hold the moral values I claim to be, uh, then I have an obligation. And I take that obligation seriously, especially because as someone who – was a university professor for 26 years, which is a, in case you don't know, a pretty cushy job. (laughs) I had, um, I got to do work I enjoyed uh, at a more than living wage with an incredible amount of autonomy, which is what's so rare in this economy. So as someone with all that privilege being subsidized by the state to do this work, I felt a heightened obligation. So that's what you might call the argument from justice, that if you're the person you claim to be, you better act in this way. But there's also, I think, what I would call an argument from self-interest, that the fact is my life is better because I have engaged in political and community organizing around questions, not only of racial justice, but gender justice and economic justice, all sorts of things. Uh, My life is better. It doesn't mean my life is easy. I often have to challenge myself and others challenge me. And sometimes it's painful to recognize how easy it is f- to fail. But the fact is, I, I have a richer, more meaningful life because I have engaged in this activity. Um, at the moment, I'm as I said, I'm 60 years old and my life kind of splits into half. The first half of my life, I didn't think much about these things. Uh, I believed in the American myth of meritocracy and all that kind of thing. In the second half of my life, I've had to sort of deconstruct all of that. And the second half of my life has often been very painful, but it's a better life. And it, and from purely selfish motivations, uh, I want to keep challenging myself and being challenged because it's led to some of the most important friendships in my life, friendships that are are really quite deep and meaningful because they're forged in that kind of struggle. So I would always encourage, whether it's white people thinking about racial justice or men thinking about gender justice, to think not only about why it's the right thing to do, but how taking all of this seriously is also, quite frankly, just going to make your life better. Not easier all the time, but I think better. Awesome. Julie?
1: In the introduction of of the book, you talk about kind of – the the joke, and I, I don't want to get into that. But I really appreciated that story. But mm-hmm. really, just kind of confronting your whiteness for for lack of the right word, and and how I mean, just even reading that was it was painful for me to think about as a as a white person. But it was also thinking painful for me to kind of think about you, thinking about you as you went through kind of that. And tell me if I'm speaking too strongly, kind of that self, self-loathing or, or that really kind of coming to grips with this part of yourself that you knew gave you privilege, but also took power from others. And you didn't at that point have a lot of power to do anything, you know, to change that. Can you talk through kind of your journey with identifying, you know, that change?
2: I think I'd start by saying, at one level, anybody who's in my position—you know, a white male with a PhD who had a university position—anybody in my place in the world who says, you know, this can be hard, you know, I can see there's an instinct to say, "Oh my God, please quit with the self-pity," but the fact is, it can be hard. That is, if you're white and you're used to going along with the crowd in a white Dominated society. And in the case of the example you, you made, um, if you're used to hearing jokes that are, you know, at least subtly, if not implicitly, if not overtly racist, and you're used to just keeping your mouth shut because it's easier than confronting a friend, for instance, it's hard to change. Now, I don't mean, oh, feel sorry for all of us old white people who have to finally get off our butts and do something. But the, the experience of it, as you're pointing out, is really difficult, especially when you risk losing friends or even uh, risk losing jobs. And in some cases, you know, white people have risked their lives in, in movements where they took chances. But let's just take the everyday example you offered where – really the only thing at risk is that somebody might get mad at you, some friend might stop calling you. Well, that's not trivial. I mean, we all need friends. We all need to be part of a group. Uh, But that's the kind of, you know, to quote James Baldwin, that's the price of the ticket. If you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to be serious and you're not going to make any progress, either contributing to the progress of society nor making any progress yourself. And I don't know Uh, what leads a person to finally want to take those risks. In my case, it was just so the slow accumulation of not only knowledge about the society I lived in, but knowledge about myself. So when I would challenge other white people, I was implicitly, I think, challenging myself. Because if you're going to call out other white people for racist behavior, you pretty much better be sure that you're adhering to the same standards you're holding other people to. And so it's complicated, and I, I don't know that it's ever easy to to understand one's own motivation or what leads one to do things. You know, we can try to self-reflect about why we do what we do, but a lot of it's hard to figure out as well. But I just know at some point, um, I had to go from just thinking certain critical thoughts to trying to make them real in the world, and and that does include all sorts of risks, some trivial, some. More important. And we hope that we are measuring up to our own standards when those things come.
0: You actually uh, raise a very good point, Robert. Uh, In Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, she has a chapter titled, The Challenges of Talking to White People About Racism. And I love one thing that she said. She says, In fact, when we try to talk openly and honestly about race, white fragility quickly emerges as we are so often met with silence defensiveness, argumentation, certitude, and other forms of pushback. And so my question becomes, how have you found it to be beneficial to talk to other white people about racism? Maybe one or two consistent points or tactics that you have employed that has allowed the conversation to flourish in your eyes.
2: Yeah. Uh- I don't want to just become a walking bibliography, but I, I want to, again, second your book recommendation there. Robin De- yeah. D'Angelo's White Fragility is a great book, and, and she's I've, I've had the pleasure of seeing her present, and I, I learn a lot every time I hear Robin talk. Um, she's a very wise person and and very courageous as well, so that's a great book for white people to take a look at. Uh, in terms of strategies for confronting other white people, uh, I think there are really Two things I would say, and they both reflect the fact that it's important not to get holier than thou. The first thing is is to, and this is a in general a pretty good strategy for confronting people, is to ask questions rather than lecture and preach to people. So if I run into you know again, let's talk about the example that uh, Julie used of a friend telling a racist joke. Uh, instead of getting up on my high horse and explaining why it's racist it would have been, um, I think, the most effective to say, oh, tell me why that joke is funny. I don't quite understand. Why Why is it humorous to use race as a, a point of humor? And then that puts the other person in the position of having to defend what, in this case, he said, rather than me you know, just being uh, the, the preachy white guy. So I think one thing is to always first lead with a question rather than an accusation. Uh, it just tends to be more effective. And the, and the second is always to share one's own failures, not just, again, preach at people. So as, as the book that Julie mentioned, The Heart of Whiteness, uh, documents, I have a long string of failures, um, and we all do if we're white, uh, just like if we're men and we want to think honestly about how we've treated women. We can all come up with a long, you know, list of failures, typically. Uh, and so, instead of immediately trying to create um, a distinction between me and another white person, in other words, instead of trying to prove that I'm better than the other person, uh, I think it's more effective to explain why we're all struggling in in the same ways. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes you don't draw that line. If I'm talking to a Member of the Klan. I'm not going to hesitate to try and distinguish between, yeah, between, uh, between why I, you know, don't hold the views that person holds, uh, and that's appropriate sometimes to mark why an overt assertion of white supremacy is beyond the pale and that no one should accept it. But most of what is important for those of us who are white and trying to help each other get clearer about it is to not get up on our high horse, to not immediately create that distance, but to talk about shared struggle. Um, And those are the only tricks I've ever come upon. They're pretty obvious, but I think they're important to constantly remind ourselves of.
1: So, and I think, I I Mm -hmm. mean, that's one thing that I struggle with a lot. We've all got families in this world, right? And, And to be kind of the College-educated, yeah. um, professional—you know—person in the family who has all of these great liberal ideas as a city dweller, um, it, it is hard to have patience when things that I think mm-hmm. that the people on the phone here or the the people on the podcast here see as just common sense humanity and. and not being able to break through those, I think, is a source of a lot of frustration for a lot of people and have broken a lot of friend and family ties over the last several years, at least, or at least we're hearing more about that now, um, and I think we all have to kind of practice some of the things that you just talked about. And I probably need to write those all down and do it myself um, a, a lot better. Um, one thing that that you um, just mentioned reminded me of a question I wanted to ask, and it it really kind of one of the parallels that I drew between what you talked about in the heart of whiteness and and the history of white people is really the. That race is is the social constraint that is put on by the people in power. Mm-hmm. And and obviously Painter goes through the vast history of getting to that, um, starting back in, in the Greek and Roman days. But what how do you see in terms of where we're at right now with identity politics and that that movement to be our own person and to put our own labels mm-hmm as yeah. good or bad in terms of breaking down the patriarchy, breaking down the power structure um, that whites have versus non-whites. So I'm a woman and I'm a person with a disability. I have a son who's gay toward is black. He's a veteran. Um, are those labels weakening us because we're not working together and seeing each other's struggles? Yeah. And, and the similarities between them, is that empowering white people or the, or the white structure, the white power structure in ways that we're not recognizing?
2: Before I answer that, let me go back to the question of family, if you don't mind, uh, because I, th- I think you're right. Uh, yeah. Family is always a struggle, uh, but people have different relationships to family. And sometimes um, the long-term strategy of trying to hang in there and and quietly, uh, or not quietly, but um, carefully challenge people rather than simply coming out both barrels, you know, to critique people. Sometimes that's a very good strategy. Other times, uh, we have to recognize the limitations of situations we're in and not be afraid to be harsh. Let me go back to the question of family, if you don't mind, uh, because I, th- I think you're right. Um, yeah. Family is always a struggle. Uh, but people have different relationships to family. And sometimes um, the long term strategy of trying to hang in there and, and quietly, uh, or not quietly, but um, carefully challenge people rather than simply coming out both barrels, you know, to critique people. Sometimes that's a very good strategy. Other times, uh, we have to recognize the limitations of situations we're in and not be afraid to be harsh. And so I'm going to talk very personally. Um, My father is an unreconstructed racist. And uh, I had no expectation that he was going to change his point of view. Uh, That was an accurate, I think, assessment. And I told him at one point, I said, I don't think you're ever going to change, and I don't really care if you change. I said, but if you ever say things in front of your grandson, my, my son, I said, if you ever say things in front of your grandson that you said in front of me when I was growing up, it's the last you'll see of your grandson. I will never bring your grandson home to see you again if you behave that way. And, and that was a harsh thing to say. And maybe it wasn't loving. Maybe there are a lot of ways I could be critiqued for it. But in that case, I actually think it was the right approach. Uh, we're not going to persuade everybody in this world that our point of view is the appropriate one. And sometimes you mark boundaries To change behavior. And that's an important thing. There's two different there's different there is a difference between changing people's hearts and changing behavior. And I think first and foremost, we want to change hearts. But when we can't do that, changing behavior is an important fallback position. It's better that there is less racist behavior in the world than more racist behavior, even if some of the people who are changing their behavior don't really believe it. So that's just a a footnote about how complex it is and how there is never, or at least there is rarely, a right or wrong answer. You, make, you kind of make it up as you go along, hoping you're judging situations correctly.
1: I think that's akin to parenting, period, right? When I hear that story, I think about my son. And the protections I've had to put around him, not dissimilar to what you're talking about. And you know, as a parent, you have to put that or that that health before you know the health of your relationship with another person.
2: So, yeah, Uh, thank you for sharing that. You were talking about identity politics, which is a term that is so loaded. Some people use it to describe um, simply an approach to recognizing that everyone's social location is the product of a lot of different aspects of our identity. In my case, I'm white. I'm male. Uh, I, I live comfortably in the middle class with professional credentials and higher education. You know, I'm a citizen of the United States in a world dominated by the United States. I, I use this joke often, and it's really not a joke. I I say if I had been born good looking, I would have had it all. Uh, So we all are the product (laughs) of our identities in that sense. But there's also a way in which identity politics is used to try to trivialize the concerns about this. Now, the problem is that if you, let's say, are on a Typical college campus. I'll just use the one I'm most familiar with, which is, of course, my own, the University of Texas at Austin. There are people trying to work on issues around race, gender, class, these sorts of things, who sometimes go forward in ways that are counterproductive. Let me give you an example. I ran into lots of undergraduate students, typically white students, who had been exposed to this kind of critique, took it seriously, tried to work it into their own lives, but then gave in to the the temptation to be morally superior. And I've been in classrooms where they typic- They typically are white students who want to demonstrate that they're one of the cool kids, essentially, that they have, they get it. They have internalized this critique and therefore they police other students, mostly other white students. Well, you could say, well, that's good. You know, white kids should be policing each other. But if it's a policing that doesn't advance the cause then it can be counterproductive. So let me just give you an example. Uh, if a white kid who has been exposed to a lot of this kind of literature and this kind of teaching and has really given it thought jumps on a white kid who is very new to the idea and tries to shame that kid for using the wrong term or you know not being, you know, up on the latest theory. Well, that can have really negative consequences. The white kid who is new to it all might think, "Well, god, I'm just trying to figure this out and And the minute I open my mouth, somebody jumps on me. Other white kids in the class can look at that example and say, wow, if you open your mouth and say the wrong thing, you can really get slammed. And that might not be the best thing to do. And so it can inhibit conversation. Now, again, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that white students, white people, that we shouldn't hold each other accountable when we engage in racist behavior or say something that's racist. I'm I'm not saying let everybody off the hook. I'm saying that we have to realize that everybody comes into this work in their own way, at, you know, with their own background, and not everybody is at the same place. And we have to recognize that. So there's a real problem in finding You know, the sweet spot there. Yeah. And that's not just true today on campuses. It's always true. But it is something I think we have to wrestle with.
0: I do believe we should wrestle with it. And I also believe that you are right when you say it's not just on campuses. It is most certainly inside of corporate quarters. It is inside of community organizations. It is inside of uh, groups that are trying to do social impact, make social impact. And that is part and parcel why we have that diversity fatigue on both sides of the equation. Those that are people that are black and brown, as well as uh, those that that have a bit less melanin, if you will. And and I really want to to do the best that I can in this conversation. I'm going to let you use the word white. I'm going to use the phrase less melanin because we okay. all agree we definitely agree that that this whole color scheme is really nothing more than some man-made system if you will but but i love how you have illustrated those that have been ambitious and they they almost uh, appear to be zealots in their their desire to 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 Distance themselves from those folks and and I don't want to be one of those folks and I'm not one of those folks. You're absolutely right in that we we are all searching for that sweet spot. And Robert, what I would what I would offer up is that that sweet spot is right here today. That sweet spot is how do we have this conversation at 37 minutes and 38 seconds How do we have that with 5,000 people? How do we have Mm -hmm. that with 15,000 people? No matter how you feel, no matter where you are in the equation, how is it that you can plug into such and then unplug from such knowing that it exists and that I have to do something different? I love how you painted that picture. And that is the mission that Julie and I are on. How do we get 500,000 people listening and dialed in and then saying to themselves, we have to do something different in our places of work.
2: You know, it's always easy to look back on one's history and find the places one was stupid in the past. (laughs) I mean, I can tell you things I did when I was a teenager in my 20s or when I first started teaching that were really stupid. And, And there's a kind of ease with that looking historically. Just like collectively, the, the culture is, you know, a little more willing to talk about racism in the, you know, 19th century than it is in the 21st. And so let me just, you know, you there was a kind of implicit challenge, Torn, in what you said about being honest. So let me let me just tell you something honestly that I still struggle with. I'm you know, I'm 60 years old. I was born in 1958 in Fargo, North Dakota, or in, in North Dakota. And that's not an excuse. It's just a reminder of who I am. And I grew up assuming that people in positions of power and authority were going to be white. Now, I know that's not true. And I have you know years of experience uh, that should help me understand why that's not true. But there are still times when I will see, let's say, a, 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 a black face in a certain position and, and notice it and wonder about that person's uh, ability, uh, you know, if, if there are certain things that are kind of reflexive like that, and I can catch myself fairly quickly and recognize the the white supremacist ideology that's dripping off of that reaction. But the fact is, I still have those reactions, and I th- I think I have those reactions because I was socialized to have them for my entire life. And it isn't an excuse like, oh, I can't be held accountable. It's a recognition that if I don't say that out loud, if I try to lie to myself then I'm not going to catch myself. I'm going to let those things pass. And so I think there's a kind of honesty that's really hard. And it's hard because it, re- it reminds us of what a painful world we live in. And, and I think we have to talk about that. Now, one more thing I want to say, the pain of living in that world that is framed by white supremacy is not equal for everyone. And that's the other thing to always remember. I I just started to kind of clench up, a tear up a little bit at at what I was saying, because it reminds me I don't like the world I live in. But to to assume that I even have the right to be overly emotional about this uh, assumes that we're all kind of in it together and, you know, everybody has a hard time. And I really want to mark the problem of what, what we often call false equivalency, that the experience of being black and being white In white supremacist America, is anything similar? Yes, it's often difficult for me walking through this world and realizing my own shortcomings and realizing the pain of the world. But that is nothing like walking through the world as a black person. And and so we both have to, I think, recognize the emotion of all of this, but not engage in any false equivalency. Where I would say, torn. Well, you know, it's hard for us in this world too. That would be absurd. Yet I also have to recognize the emotional experience I go through trying to struggle with all of this crazy white supremacist stuff. I don't know if that makes sense, but it seemed important to say.
0: It makes all, it makes all the sense in the world. And so you have so many individuals now who want to equate, let's let's just use the LGBTQ movement, and they want to juxtapose that with the struggles that we went through in the civil rights era. I've even had some in the LGBTQ community wish to take their struggle back to and mirror it over what we went through in Jim Crow and even slavery. And what I try to do is I try to give them, you know, a a sort of a very quick run through history that I am not minimizing the struggle that you face today in 2019 or perhaps that you have faced in the. Uh, uh, 1990s or maybe 1980 or 70 when you could not necessarily come out. But I cannot allow you in all honesty, I can't allow you to just walk away feeling as if your struggle or what you are going through is in any way the same as what black uh, men and women and their children have had to go through. We have articles right now. I can go to my computer and pull articles right now where they are talking about. Little black girls and boys, how they are seen as either adults and or people who can, who can endure more pain, more pain. So we see a black child who is five, six, seven, and the the, the let's just say the 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 educator in their school, they see them when they stub their toe or they run up against a wall or scrape their knee. Oh, you can handle it. You're strong. You're tough. You can you can you can handle that. But then for the the child with less melanin, you know, they want to pacify them and treat them as a child. And there's nothing wrong with treating them as a child. There's certainly something wrong with seeing a five year old as someone older and or able to endure more pain. I feel you, Robert, one thousand percent. You have the right to tear up. It is it shows the the humanity in who you are and the authenticity in your you're having this conversation with Julie and I and I so appreciate your distinguishing between the fact that it's not the same as the walk the life of a black and brown individual.
2: Yeah, and you know, sometimes people warn us against getting into the oppression olympics where we try to rank somehow human suffering. Um uh, so, you know, I'm talking um uh, over the internet, uh, not face to face, with a white woman and a black man. So if I were asked uh, whose experience is more difficult, uh, a white woman who lives as a woman with the recognition of the constant threat of sexual violence in the world, or a black man who as a black person lives with the constant threat of white supremacy in the world and how it can uh, literally be deadly. I mean there's no point in trying to rank those. Um you know the the gay lesbian experience Uh, involves incredible suffering. Uh, As someone who's currently married to a woman but has lived part of my life as a gay man, and I guess I'm bisexual, sometimes I just feel confused. I remember the incredible psychological stress and pain of knowing I was different than other boys, or at least imagining I was different, Uh, being terrified of that, being terrified of being beaten up if I ever said anything about what I was struggling with. How does that rank against uh, the current struggle of uh, uh, Latino folks who live in Texas on the border and are constantly subject to harassment from law enforcement in this you know, era of uh, an almost psychotic fear of immigrants. Well, there's no point in trying to rank all of this. There's no point in assuming that they all come from the same struggle or can be dealt with in the same way. The point is that humans, have found an incredible number of ways of ranking each other and then giving some people ranked on top unearned wealth, power and privilege. And we need to struggle against them all without falsely equating any of them. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us all trying to understand each other and in the end, all accountable for the ways that we participate in the oppression of others. And again, for me as a white guy, you know, with a good job from the United States. It's mostly for me about recognizing how, through no, you know, uh, as a result of no action on my own part, I ended up on top of the heat, and I'm accountable for that, and that's what I always try to remember.
1: So one one thing that I hear in this conversation is it's it's the power, right? So it's it's not the difference, it's not the oppression, it's not the struggle, it is the power structure, and when I think about power structure. I think probably as much about socioeconomic status as I do about race or disability or gender. Where kind of where does your where does your thinking fit in? How impactful socioeconomic differences are between the between differences mm-hmm. or just between us as as two groups? So the the not mm-hmm. in power and the in power.
2: Well, I mean there are lots of ways that people's identity, as we were talking about earlier, affect life outcomes, the chances you have in this world. I tend to, it, I tend to think about four categories that I think we can't avoid. The question of race in a white supremacist world, the question of uh, sex gender in a patriarchal world, the question of socioeconomic class in a capitalist world, and the realities of, of nation in a world where the distribution of wealth and power across the globe is quite uneven, right? And so all of those are relevant. All of those will, you know, to use a term that's very popular these days, intersect in determining one's chances in the world. And all of them are the result of disparities in power. Uh, white over non-white, male over female, uh, wealthy over poor and working class, and first world, especially in this context, the United States, over what we sometimes call the Global South, the Third World, the developing world, the world that was, you know, the 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 worst affected by European colonialism. Okay, well, all of those things are important, and at any given moment, one might be more salient, we would say, than another. Uh, and there's no algorithm to run to work it all out. We just have to be conscious. Of them all, and how complex the world is because all of those are functioning. Uh, and beyond that, you know, it would be nice if we if we had formulas to work it all out. I suppose. Uh, let, let's just take the question that is very much on the minds of you know political analysts: the the status of the sometimes mythical white working class. Uh, I'd recommend another book uh, I I think that deals with this very well by a woman named Sarah Smarsh. And the book is called Heartland. And she comes from the white working class rural poor in Kansas. And she talks about what it means to grow up in those communities where access to education is limited, where the work is low paid and often very physically demanding. Uh, And for many people, there is a feeling of, of no way out. Now, she was the daughter of a teenage mother who was herself the daughter of a teenage mother. And Sarah's story takes a different direction. She ends up getting a scholarship, going to college and changing that trajectory. But she writes really um, in really compelling fashion about that history, but she also doesn't pretend that the white working class is also not part of a white supremacist society. And so she talks about the, the relevance of Of race in that white supremacist society. Uh, And she talks a lot about gender. And so it's a good example, I think, of a book that practices that attempt to think intersectionally, uh, dealing with a difficult subject of growing up the way she did, uh, but not ignoring all of the other aspects of the world that are relevant as well.
0: So I just wanted to uh, just jump in real quick. Uh, The both of you mentioned the power, Julie, you said it, and then Robert, you picked up on it. And for that individual, that naysayer that is listening for that individual listening, who perhaps has a friend, a relative who is uh, a naysayer, who might profess that black people, brown people can also be racist. um, I just want to kind of define when 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 I hear the word power, I think about, you know, legitimate and legal access to resources to systems and to institutions. And so I just really want to make sure that people are thinking about it from that standpoint. When we talk power, you know, as a black man, I may not be able, or I may be able to prevent you from securing this one job, but from a widespread standpoint, you're not going to find a number of Torrin Ellis's around the country or the globe that are preventing swaths of people from a job and so power is something that really is around that legitimate and legal access to resources to systems as well as institutions wanted to throw that in
2: yeah Torrent, let me ask you a question why are you so angry Oh, okay, that was uh, a joke. Yeah, I know.
0: I, 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 I just I, wanted to make a joke. No, no. Let me, let me <laughs> now, <tell you. laughs> no, 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 no. Let me tell you. And I knew the moment you said it. I knew it was a joke to to you. I you just didn't give me a chance to acknowledge it in a joking way. But that yeah. is so so much so um, uh, a phrase of uh, yeah. or characterization that yeah. is lauded upon. Me, when I grab a microphone, when I show up at an event, uh, you know, it is without doubt that there are people sitting in the room that will say, man, he's an angry black man. And then what I always ask them, if they're bold enough to say it in front of me or if someone is bold enough to share with me that it was said, then I say to them, have you ever said that he's an angry white man? Yeah. Have you ever said, you know, let's talk about white on white crime? Like, no matter what we're talking about, we have no problem saying the phrase black on black crime and then attaching it to Chicago. No matter where they are in the world, you know, people have been socialized to think black people, crime, Chicago in that order, in that order. And so then I say, all right, well, show me white people, crime and give me a city. Can't do it. Yeah can't do it so i knew you were joking robert
2: yeah but let me explain why i made the joke because um of course you know you're making the point that that prejudice anybody can be prejudiced you know i don't like people who are dallas cowboy football fans or whatever it might be that's right i mean people you know people have all sorts of crazy ideas about what they like and don't like in other human beings but when we talk about racism we're talking about the ability to to use a a, a power that is accorded to those of us who are white to actually affect the outcomes of other people's lives. And as you point out, you know, you, if, if you were a manager in a company, you might be able to deny some white person a job that you don't like, but there's a couple of things. One is that, how often does that really happen? Uh, in my experience, I have not been on the receiving end of a lot of antipathy from, from black and non-white people more generally. Uh, but what happens is that any critique of the system like one you're making as you point out gets read as anger and and so why do we take a critique of a system of which we're a part as white people as an expression of anger as opposed to an analysis which is what it is right and the second point i want to i want to add is if you were angry torin and i suspect sometimes you are angry well big surprise if there is a system that you know, puts you in a position uh, of vulnerability and risk, wouldn't somebody get angry at that a lot? Uh, You know, of course, people are angry. And anger is not an irrational response to injustice. In fact, you know, all the political organizers of the world will tell you anger is an important political emotion that when you can identify correctly the source of your own oppression, anger at it is a perfectly justifiable response. So I think those of us who are white have to get past those some of these reflexes where we want to make ourselves in a sense, if not the victim, at least um, people that you have to have some sympathy for. I mean, I'm again, I'm 60 years old and I've been around all sorts of people all my life And not every person I've met who is non-white has been nice to me. Some of them have been unpleasant. Uh, Sometimes they've made comments I thought were stupid. I mean, you know, the world is what it is. It's full of a lot of people. But in terms of a system uh, in which I have to routinely endure those kind of things, the answer is no, of course I don't ever endure it. And if you're angry about the fact that you have to endure it, Torin, well, seems to me that anger is justified.
1: So I think that seems like a pretty good place to wrap up unless you have any more questions Well, uh,
0: Again, if if you don't have one, Julie, let me just first and foremost say, uh, Dr. Robert Jensen, we absolutely appreciate your willingness to to join us and to have an honest and transparent conversation. And by all means, this is but one hour, but one hour of what I suspect. Julie and I, as well as you, could have probably taken a quick break, grabbed a beverage, and continued on for several (laughs) more hours. So we thank you tremendously. Here's my final question. Uh, Racism has really been one of the more complex social dilemmas, and I think the three of us agree on that. What are your parting words for our listenership, a listenership that is uh, part and parcel professional from uh, a variety of different industries, geographies, academic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. We have listeners in a variety of other countries. I'm not saying that as if we have millions of listeners. That's not it. We want to be there, but we know we have a very, very different and diverse group of listeners. What are your closing comments for them? Because I want them to hit them right in the middle of their air canal.
2: Well, my my thought as you were you were wrapping up was that denial rarely works to help solve a problem. If you've got a problem, denying it doesn't really get you anywhere. And so, if you're a, a, in the business world and you want to increase your productivity and profit margin. Denying the existence of patterns of white supremacy in society and within your own company isn't going to help you. If you're in an educational institution and you really want students to thrive, denying patterns of white supremacy and institutionalized racism in your uh, university isn't going to help you get there. If you just want to be a better person, denying your own place in that world isn't going to get you there. So, I think a lot of what we're talking about is just um, finally breaking free from the way we're trained to deny reality. And um, if one can break free of that, I think um, on whatever criteria you want to measure uh, your success in the world, you're going to be more successful. Uh, But there is a, a, a process by which you have to to face yourself in the mirror. And that's never easy. Um, and it's not been easy for me. It continues to be difficult to tell the truth about myself, but that's that's what we're called to do. And I, I will keep struggling and hopefully continue to make progress till the day I die.
0: Dr. Robert Jensen, emeritus professor, School of Journalism at the University of Texas, uh, Austin. You can find him on Twitter at Jensen, Robert W that's J E N S E N Robert and the letter W as in when we won in this conversation today. His most recent book is the end of patriarchy, radical Fem- feminism for men. Uh, I think that was through spin effects press. Dr. Robert Jensen Toran Ellis says, thank you. I absolutely appreciate your contribution to crazy. And the king.
2: Thank you very much. It was, it was an honor to be with you.
1: Thank you. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Torn. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye. So, Torin, we have a sponsor.
0: Mad cool. That says that they appreciate the work that we are doing through this podcast vehicle.
1: You know what else is cool is what other people are saying about Gusto.
0: So give me examples. I mean, it's easy for you to say people are talking about it, but give me some examples.
1: So Tom S. said Gusto has allowed my small company to offer big time benefits without an HR department.
0: Shout out to Tom, but do you have more?
1: Yes, I have another one from Sation who says Gusto is effortless, which is how I like HR, out of sight, out of mind, yet doing what it's supposed to do.
0: So what you are saying is Gusto is more than a payroll provider.
1: Absolutely. And Gusto integrates with all of your favorite tools that, again, makes life easier. Tools like QuickBooks, Google and and many others. So if you visit Gusto.com slash C-A-T-K, that's Gusto.com forward slash C-A-T-K, you'll get three complimentary months from Crazy in the King.
0: How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform